thanks to uh, everybody for being here. Um, I'm Olgolika, I direct the Russia and Eurasia program at, here at CSIS. I am um, also the person who will be moderating this panel, and in case of any emergency, uh, I'm the person who will point out things less obvious than the exit signs, which you can see. Um, so um, I'm really thrilled to be hosting this conversation about Russian electronic warfare capabilities. Um, with Roger McDermott as our presenter and Michael Kaufman as our discussant. Um, Roger's a non-resident research fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security at Tallinn, as well as a senior fellow in Eurasian Military Studies at the Jamestown Foundation here in Washington, and a senior international research fellow for the Foreign Military Studies Office uh, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, Mike is senior research scientist at the Russian Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analyses. Both of them know a great deal about Russian military issues, um, have written extensively, and Roger particularly has been looking at uh, the electronic warfare aspect of, um, of Russian developments and writing about that um, in recent years. So I'm not going to take too much more time. I'm going to turn the floor over to Roger for his presentation. Thank you. <clears throat> I'd like to begin just by expressing <coughs> gratitude to uh, Olga Olicker and CSIS for the opportunity to speak today. I uh, look forward to presentation and also to the, the opportunity to take some questions. To begin with, I'm going to talk about uh, what I will talk about. I uh, also need to try to contextualize how the report came about what the, the process involved that led to publication, and say a little bit about the context of my interest in uh, Russian military development, and specifically in this field of electronic warfare, <coughs> which is an underestimated, perhaps uh, certainly undercovered area of the, the study of modern Russian armed forces. And by the time I've done all that, I hope that I'll actually be able to say something about Russian electronic warfare. So <clears throat> to begin with, if I just give the, the context of the publication of this report took place in September 2017. It was funded by the government of Estonia, specifically the Defence Ministry, and the work, <clears throat> the research was carried out under the umbrella of the International Centre for Defence and Security. The report in its entirety is downloadable on the ICDS website. And the launch took place in Tartu, a very professionally and slickly organized conference on EW and cyber by the, <coughs> the British uh, organizational defense company, specializes in organizing this type of event and also uh, providing niche services to its clients. Uh, tangent link limited and this is by no means a, a plug specifically about a company but just to explain uh, something of the process of how this came about. To get into why this happened, it happened uh, partly as a result of my own long-term interests in Russian military development and also a number of coincidences that took place <coughs> in recent years, uh, one or two of which I'll mention before we go any further forward. 
So with my interest, <coughs> I, I look primarily at Russian military thought, force development, reform. I'm very interested in Russian views on future warfare and the extent to which they're harnessing new capabilities. And some of you who are perhaps more familiar with my work would be aware that since the Serdukov reforms were launched in 2008-2009, I very closely followed the development of the adoption of C4 ISR, the network-centric warfare capability in Russia's armed forces, which quite frankly, until very recently, uh, many Western governments didn't take too seriously. Some of the specifics, <coughs> you may remember uh, some reporting that took place around the time of the seizure of Crimea in 2014. The USS Donald Cook featured in some media reporting in regards to Russian EW capability. And I'll try to come back to this theme later in the presentation, as it's important that we avoid using either the presentation today or the report as a, <coughs> as a way of feeding into what I might describe as the, the Russia hysteria or the tendency to exaggerate the threat presented by Russia. So I haven't arrived here today, nor did I research the report to attempt to continue to promote or promulgate the theme of threat inflation uh, when we come to look at the Russian Federation and its role in the international security system. One or two other developments <coughs> that are important by way of background is the, the surge in interest in A2AD capability that since uh, the seizure of Crimea, there's been a, a gradual but continued, uh, some might describe it as militarization of Kaliningrad. And we also see a reinforcement of Crimea with systems that feed into this growing capability of Russian A2AD. The analysis then has to be contextualized that we need to know something about uh, Russia's efforts to uh, integrate C4ISR, the improvements that they've made since the Serdukov reform, and the way that many of these strands of Russian military capability are becoming integrated and feed into one another. And this specifically ties into uh, the, the EW theme. So <clears throat> to begin with, as we look at in the report, the organizational structure of electronic warfare forces in the Russian armed forces is very complex, but it's important to note that it's found throughout every arm of service, every branch of service. It's almost impossible to avoid an EW capability, which very much contrasts to Western militaries even today. That is to say, if we look at the staff officers in a United States brigade, we're going to find two, maybe three maximum. And in the, the illustration of the, the Orbat that we're looking at, 
the reformed uh, motor rifle brigade structure from the 2008 reforms, we see that they've organically placed an electronic warfare unit in the, the, the structures. We see uh, they, they simply cannot move. They cannot do anything without having uh, an EW component or the, the capability represented in the, the operation that they conduct. So in that structure, there's maybe somewhere between 150 and 180 EW specialists, and that's just down at tactical level. And if we look elsewhere, we can see that they, they haven't just placed the, the EW capability structurally within the, the brigades in this way, but in addition, they, <coughs> they've also taken steps to ensure that there is an EW representation at strategic, operational, and tactical levels. The ORBAT of the EW company that I'm showing here, I've specifically framed part of it because <coughs> clearly Russia and uh, President Putin have been criticized and to some extent uh, many analysts and Western governments expected things to go badly wrong for them in Syria. And it, quite evidently that hasn't occurred. One thing that I think happened this month that's possibly, arguably, uh, a step forward or one of the best things in the recent experience of EW is the attempted drone swarm attack on the Russian military facilities in Syria. Why I say it's a positive experience for them is it's way better than a snap inspection. <laughs> and it's absolutely well beyond simulating it or trying to exercise it. And one of the reasons the Russian armed forces, and particularly its leadership, are booming with confidence at this point is because they're gaining such operational experience. Operational experience that until the intervention in Syria, they quite frankly lacked. And what happened very briefly with this attempted drone attack on the, the 5th, 6th of January, we know that 13 small drones were used. They were launched around 50 kilometers from the Russian air base near Latakia. And they also targeted approximately 100 kilometers away the naval logistics facility in Tartus. Now, all of those rudimentary drones were brought down. Seven of them were brought down using the Panzer S-1 air defense system. And I should say at this point, there's been a lot of Western criticism of Russian air defense systems, particularly since the, the attack, US attack on Al-Sharayat. And I think these uh, efforts to discredit some of the Russian systems are really quite unfounded. So you can see just how effective the, the Panzer S-1 was against these drones. But the other six of them were disabled using EW. Uh, none of them reached their targets. And I framed this, this particular element because I suspect these are the, the likely candidates in doing it. If you look at the, the target range, the time of the, the flight of the drones and so on, there's no necessity for them to employ strategic EW systems. 
Coming then to the strategic element, since the reforms initiated under uh, former Minister Serdukov, uh, we see since then a, a consistent effort to create strategic level assets, strategic and strategic operational, by scattering a number of specialist EW brigades across the, the Russian Federation. They're represented in the map. Uh, we see uh, that there's at least one located in each of the, the military districts. There's two that feature in the Western military district, and the explanation for the anomaly is in relation to the, the rather nebulous uh, Arctic or North uh, Joint Strategic Command, which we uh, have no evidence to see that this functions as a separate military district. So if we look at that part of the map, we see that there are two brigades. I do not believe that in any way represents a, an increase in the, the posture towards NATO. It's just how the Russian general staff and the defense ministry plan these locations. There's been uh, a tendency in the Western analysis and particularly in the, the expert literature to either assume or allude to the extent to which the Russian posture has changed since the Ukraine crisis. And what I find in the developments of EW is quite the contrary, because the, the push to modernize the equipment and the assets and the drive to create and then to equip these brigades, as we see, begins five years before the Ukraine crisis itself. The last EW brigade was formed in 2015. So this is something that clearly the general staff have been thinking about for many, many years. I've given some examples of the, the Russian systems, and I alluded earlier to the tendency in some media reporting to exaggerate the capability that we're seeing. And the best illustration of this comes back to uh, the poor USS Donald Cook. I say poor because we know that on a number of occasions it's been the target of so-called Russian buzzing. This is the, the VKS uh, reminding the United States military that Russia, the largest country on earth, still exists. In the spring of 2014, an incident was reported first in Russian media, that then uh, very shortly afterwards, April 2014, uh, becomes viral in some of the Western media reporting. And that is that a Su-24 had approached the Donald Cook in the Black Sea. Uh, the Cook was there as part of a, a routine mission. Didn't appear to be any kind of response to what was happening in Ukraine. And uh, the media reporting was that uh, a system, EW system known as Kabini, had been used to switch off the Aegis system. It completely shut out the radars and <coughs> left the, the systems effectively inoperable. And this tended to go through different 
reporting cycles, and there was certainly some boasting in the Russian media and some scaremongering in Western media reporting. But <clears throat> by 2016, uh, try to explain what it is that may have happened by 2016, even the conglomerate of uh, Russian defense companies that specialize in EW equipment and assets, they finally had to issue a press release to say this had never happened. And one of the reasons for this is that the system itself, the, the Kabini, was under development for an entirely different set of Sioux platforms. It could not possibly ever have been mounted on the Sioux 24. In addition, uh, during research interviews with EW specialists, uh, must say non-Russian EW specialists, they also questioned the scientific basis of the reporting. Is a good illustration then of what we're, we're trying to get at by contextualizing the report is that we're by no means attempting to exaggerate the Russian threat or to say that they have suddenly developed a capability that is a game changer. However, if we see it in a slightly different context, that is the development of C4ISR capability and where Russia envisages the possibility, the very, very remote possibility of kinetic conflict with NATO, then we can begin to make sense of the EW capabilities in a slightly different sense. And that is to say, the, the whole idea of a Russian attack on the Baltic states or a Russian attack on NATO member states in its eastern areas is a, a nonsense that is never given any credibility whatsoever within serious Russian military journals. But notice I've used the word attack. By that, I'm referring to this whole prospect or the whole theme of a Russian war of aggression. So there's constant references to the Zapad exercises. Zapad is something that we should mention both in the context of uh, Russian military capability, what it is that they test, the extent to which they're making progress, but also there is an EW theme. Now let me just say all the soothsaying, all the forecasts that were offered in the run-up to Zapad 2017, all fell flat. Sometimes the Russian general staff and defense ministry are telling the truth. They issue statements to say the Zapad exercise is a defensive exercise. Then comes a response from certain governments or from certain Western analysts who have a vested interest in threat inflation to say, well, this is odd, because in the Zapad series of exercises, when they happen, like going back to 2009-2013, the Russian armed forces do exercise military intervention in the Baltic, or, for example, an attack on Poland, 
What is the explanation? It is perfectly normal in a strategic military exercise to exercise counter-offensives. Look at Soviet and Russian military history. It would be nowhere without the counter-offensive theme. So when I say that I'm not trying to use the report to engage in threat inflation or, or to, to push a particular agenda or vision of Russia's place in the international system, I'm not saying that there are no circumstances in which something kinetic could happen. But the Zapad exercise model really reveals quite a bit about red thinking, about how the potential adversary is looking at the system and how they look at the United States and NATO. And that is this, when they look, they see an unpredictable actor, an actor that has a proven track record of out-of-area operations, of intervention, and within the more serious Russian defense circles, there is a palpable concern. How do we deal with, how do we plan for this uh, unpredictable actor or this appetite to intervene? And so when we come back to the reality of Zapad, Zapad always models a Western intervention in Belarus. Has nothing to do directly with the Baltic states or with other NATO member states. That part of it is Russian armed forces rehearsing vertical and horizontal escalation. And of course, they're particularly interested in using this type of asset to shape and to control the potential battlefield. I see there is an EW component to this, and the Zapad exercise is particularly notable for the fact that in February last year, EW forces had already deployed for a short time to Belarus which gave a clue as to the importance the general staff were attaching to EW forces. And then when the exercise happened, guess what? They rehearse combat in an EMS, challenged environment. In other words, the blue and red team in the exercise. How do we, as Russian military, uh, enter operations where there is <coughs> Uh, contest, the challenge in the EMS, the electromagnetic spectrum. And before coming to some conclusions that may be of interest for NATO, the Russian military for many years has regarded the EMS as a, a battle space. It's only now that we're seeing uh, an integration, a closing of the gap between the capabilities, the procurement, and their military thinking. So it should be no surprise for us to come to the conclusion that the Russian general staff see the EMS uh, as a, a potential uh, warfighting domain. On Russia's periphery, if something goes wrong, and there is kinetic uh, conflict with NATO, of course, Russia holds a number of advantages. 
geographical, uh, the potential to, to use A2AD, uh, specifically air defense. And I've tried to represent in these conclusions some of that. But just by way of conclusion, and showing this level of integration that I think that they're achieving. We go back to the attempted swarm attack on the Russian military facilities earlier this month. We see it there in the response from the Panzer S1 combined with the EW response to neutralize uh, the threat. And clearly, uh, I'm not attempting to advocate that this potential threat in future is not taken seriously. There are already Russian military analysts uh, writing about and arguing about the potential dangers of terrorists in future deploying swarm attacks against civilian infrastructure, civil infrastructure against uh, perhaps civilian targets. On that, uh, we'll try to bring this to a close and look forward to taking any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Um, that, was, uh, that was quite comprehensive. So um, I'm looking forward uh, to hearing um, some of Mike's thoughts to uh, perhaps uh, identify and or fill in some gaps. Hmm. Thanks a lot. Great brief, Roger. Um, I'll try to make my remarks short, concise, and to the extent I can complimentary. Uh, so my view is first three main points on, I think, how we should consider Russia's approach to electronic warfare. Uh, the first is part of a long, ongoing discussion within the Russian military on the nature of current warfare and the correlation of force and methods, right? And the shake out of that discussion is a focus on non-contact warfare, that is, those capabilities that do not require the system to actually cross into the enemy's territory, directly make contact with their forces. The second one is that electronic warfare plays more into the conversation on how do you attack the system, how the adversaries goes about their warfare, and not necessarily as much about making contact with direct capabilities. It's how you disrupt the kill chain and the Western way of war focused on air power, long-range conventional munitions, and essentially degrade the information available for information-driven warfare. And the third one is, how do you achieve superiority over the information environment writ large, both during the crisis phases and subsequently during the conflict, because that's viewed as a much more essential feature of warfare today than it was you know, previous Russian conceptions of it. Um, and here, electronic warfare does not simply play a role attacking military platforms, C2 or ISR. Here, it's also about either attacking or protecting critical infrastructure, including civilian. It's about influencing the adversary. Now, on the information concept, it's a bit squishy. Why? Because the information domain itself is kind of a bit squishy. So it comes off a little bit of sort of electronic warfare to do all the things. But this includes both sort of the general battle for the narrative, protecting your own soldier from being influenced, from information provided by the adversary and your own population, at the same time trying to influence the enemy's soldiers on the battle line. And it represents sort of the integration of kind of maybe three more mission sets, where you may think of cyber, traditional electronic warfare, and psyops on the battlefield. Here I'll spell off some applications or interesting points that I see. One kind of on the high end towards high end technologically advanced adversaries like United States NATO, another one more towards the low end. They're not entirely separate, there's good overlap. But on the high end, so as Roger rightfully pointed out, that you have electronic warfare companies in battalion tactical groups and you also have some of these mainline detached brigades. What that really tells you is that in exercises, um, when brigades as the force generating element for battalion tactical groups, 
are going to produce them for a real combat scenario, those brigade commanders and battalion commanders will have a lot of access, good use, and experience to the company level capabilities they have. And what happens is if you take sort of advanced capabilities and you take them out of the strategic reserve, right? Because when you have like the electronic warfare brigade, that's great, but more than likely most brigade and battalion commanders have absolutely no idea what that technology does and have never really worked with it. But when they have them as companies and they practice generating them together with other battalions, then they're much more confident in what they can do. They know its limitations. They know what it requires to actually field. That's your one, too. There's a whole element of electronic warfare for deception, simulating various signals, spoofing GPS. So it's not so much direct attack, but it's also about countering some of the dependencies in Western technologies. The other one that I find much more interesting than just your standard mainline electronic warfare jamming and defeat technologies is ISR for targeting, particularly for land forces, right? Which is big questions always for us is to what extent can electronic warfare capabilities be used in the electronic support function to provide targeting on the battlefield, particularly with cooperative targets. Why? The Russian military is incredibly good at killing things, if it can find them. But it always historically struggles at seeing on the battlefield, particularly on land. And the finding part is very complex and quite challenging. Now, this particularly is important in the modern battlefield because, well, with modern technology, you have a lot of cooperative targets. Before I came here, I was just looking at the whole uh, story on Guardian regarding the Strava exercise heat map, right, where you have all these soldiers uploading data, and then you can go look in Somalia and say, it's so strange. Somebody's doing all this jogging at this, at this particular base in Somalia. I wonder who that is out there, right, or in Yemen. So uh, because institutions and, and, and TDPs in practice have not caught up with modern technology, uh, using electronic warfare means is particularly advantageous because a lot of people will be cooperating, just the reality of the day. Uh, and then you have your traditional electronic warfare for defeat, suppressing onboard systems like radars, communications, low-Earth orbit satellites, and, you know, countering drone technology. Um, essentially trying to come after the sort of vertical stack that the West uses in terms of ISR assets, from low altitude, medium, all the way up to space. Um, one of the big questions that remain is, almost all of this is land-based. To what extent can Russia make any of this air base on large platforms like A100, or maybe helicopter base like for Chuck, to what point can it actually become more mobile and join the air? Because almost all these capabilities are all on land. And versus low end adversaries, well, as we discussed, deny adversaries use of drones and cheap uh, drone technologies, be it in Ukraine or Syria. Jam comms against people who are basically using cell phones or things that are not much more complicated than that. And very useful against cooperative targets that are not used to engaging adversaries with sophisticated electronic warfare and the support function. Why? Because they identify where they are and you can target them. And a lot of capabilities Russians have that can direct artillery fire. Because one of the first integration of electronic warfare, principled two directions in the Russian military were one, support air defense, and two, support artillery, right? The two, like natural instincts, all kind of military establishments, given what they do, have a general proclivity when they get a new capability, how they're gonna integrate into the force for what functions first. And for us, it's always air defense, and second, it's support long-range ground-based offensive fires. Um, and finally, you have a lot of applications for PSYOPs, particularly you know, on low-end conflict thresholds like proxy warfare, unconventional warfare, because a lot of Russian electronic warfare capabilities are actually small, the squad company level, and they're readily deployed with other forces in expeditionary capacity or in support of proxy forces elsewhere. They're not that big and they're not overly that complicated. So as you can see them used throughout uh, uh, the separatist breakaway territories in Ukraine and being tested there, that they have pretty good application. Uh, Finally, I'll close out with some questions on capability. And these are not sort of my own answers. These are whimsical thoughts I have when I look at it in the trajectory. 
of electronic warfare in the Russian military. The first is, can they do some of the things they're advertised to do? Like, let's say, jamming artillery fuses that are non-mechanical, things like that, pre-detonating ground. Because the challenge is that a lot of what we know about Russian electronic warfare capabilities, unfortunately, come either from own Russian statements, which is self-PR by companies like Kret who make it, and of course, according to them, that you know, it does everything. Uh, you know, and also some stories from the battlefield for Ukraine. But to put it mildly, I think for those you need a lot more com confirmation because war stories have a large tendency to exaggerate, especially when the conflict's still ongoing. So you a lot more time and assessment as to what Russian electronic warfare capabilities really can and can't do. Second one, the complexity of reconciling air defenses and electronic warfare, right? Which is the question. How do they operate without jamming themselves? And the answer is they don't. They do jam themselves. So how do they plan to fight? Because one of the things that came out of Zappa, I think, head of Estonia, and, um, uh, until like, somebody else commented uh, in public that, well, it looked like they were jamming themselves a lot. Yes, so it's interesting. They plan to fight jamming us and, and themselves. And this is, uh, you know, like early technology development when first you had aircraft and machine guns, eventually someone figured out how to time synchronize the machine gun with a propeller so it could fire through a propeller. So how do you get electronic warfare and air defenses to work together uh, such that they're synchronized? And next is electronic warfare and excise and signaling, which is, okay, we have all the jamming of sort of NATO ships or during exercises, they're pervasive jamming, understanding the electromagnetic spectrum crosses boundaries. Um, how do we consider the implication of these capabilities in crisis, which is are they gonna add a lot of complexity in managing situations because of their pervasive effects, right? Because when you're in crisis, there's a lot of uh, signaling going on, particularly with military or military, let's say, non-kinetic means. Electronic warfare will undoubtedly be one of them. But by reducing the information the different sides have available in a crisis, we may introduce the wrong dynamics, while at the same time, non-kinetic means are the best means to engage in crisis escalation if you want to. So it's a bit of a catch-22 because signaling is fraught with misperception, right? It's, on the one hand, it's very accessible, but on the other hand, it's very dangerous because it denies information to both sides at a time when they needed to make further decisions. Anyway, I'll leave it at that, and I think turn it over to Oya. Okay, thank you. Um, I thought this was really interesting. I think it raised, both raised and answered um, some questions. The question I would like to throw out first, kind of with my moderator's prerogative, is, okay, so we, we've heard a bit about how the Russians are thinking about using electronic warfare capabilities mm -hmm. and developing them. We've also heard that Russia, like most countries, when it exercises the scenarios it develops are defensive scenarios. Which leads me to wonder, what are Russian views of Western electronic warfare uh, developments and capabilities, and how does Russia view defense not, not, not counter-offensive defense, but actual defense in the electronic warfare space. So I don't know to what extent there are, you know, you guys have looked at that, but that's mm. kind of the question that kept running through my mind as I was listening uh, to, to your uh, presentations. So, okay. Roger first. I guess. Well, if we, <coughs> we look at the, the publicity, or the PR from Kret, we would certainly come away with the impression that uh, American systems are pretty much lagging behind. Uh, that mythology that built up uh, surrounding the alleged attack on the, the USS Donald Cook, in my view, it was about Cret trying to make sure that they get their slice of the pie from the defense spending. And as soon as uh, Russian government officials uh, discovered 
this new toy of EW. They obviously wanted to put money into it, and Cret were sufficiently confident of the funding level, which is undoubtedly going to continue over the next decade and, and beyond. They seem to reach a point where they were much more comfortable in <coughs> publicly admitting that they, they haven't developed Star Trek-like capabilities. But <coughs> Mike is absolutely correct when we, we see what they've been doing in, in Donbass. They've used the, the whole uh, operational environment, the opportunity afforded by real conflict, albeit mostly proxy <coughs> conflict, to test, uh, to move systems into, move systems back out of Donbass. And this has really given uh, Cret and other interested defense companies in this area a wonderful uh, test bed, testing opportunity to further refine. They look clearly at Western systems, are very interested particularly in US systems. But amongst some of the, the more uh, reliable claims that they're making, we should take seriously the leadership of Cret in interviews saying that the R&D currently in progress is specifically designed to target NATO C4 ISR. And as a particularly good example of this, there's a system that's been hanging around in the R&D stage since 2001 that <coughs> quite shortly going to introduce it's, uh, an anti-communication uh, satellite system <coughs> which they, they refer to as uh, Tirada 2S. Sli I'm slightly puzzled by that because I've never found a Tirada 1, but <coughs> they, they call it 2S. And they <coughs> The system uh, from the reporting seems credible, but what's interesting about this system when they're talking about using it to, to jam or to, to take out, to use an Americanism, uh, enemy communication satellites, they say that the R&D work has been designed to complement a strike system, strike system against enemy satellites which uh, is referred to as Rudolph. Mm -hmm. And excuse me, I'm not making this up. You know, I, I'd love to see, uh, <coughs> on an aside, uh, some conflict reporting where one of these satellites is taken out by Rudolph. <laughs> but you've got Rudolph and uh, Tirada is a, a wonderful illustration of how they're trying to join up the dots, both in their thinking and their defense planning, to, to integrate I would argue to develop asymmetric capabilities vis-a-vis -a, -vis a high technology opponent. When I read the Russian military theory, this is something that really stands out. It's not just EW, uh, it's air defense, it's A2AD, it's conventional strike systems. They do not envisage this primarily for using uh, in low intensity conflict. Of course, it's useful for them to have it around, to, to have those options. Uh, but they, they seem to principally think about it in a, a high technology context. So I'm giving a kind of roundabout answer to the question that <clears throat> perhaps reflects how the Russian general staff uh, treat or think about NATO exercises, which is 
they don't, in my view, they don't take them terribly seriously. And in the CW context, the reason is quite simple. NATO doesn't train. We do not exercise to put forces into an EMS-contested battle space. The Russians do, and they feel that they're making advances in this area uh, that gives them a, 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 an injection of confidence. Mike? Yeah, well, I'll attack the target directly. So um, my, my view of it is that one, by and large, Russian military sees electronic warfare as an offset, so they don't value uh, Western capabilities in this department. They see it as an area of advantage, with one major exception, which is there's always been a traditional concern and healthy respect for Western airborne electronic warfare assets in a role of defeating Russian air defense. And in fact, this was a traditional concern from 1980s where Soviet military planners were very worried about platforms like F-111 Raven and others that could stay out of the range of air defenses, jam them out, and they built specifically long-range air defense missiles that would home on jam. And so that concern has carried its way through. All right. That being said, with the exception of the, the potential impact that electronic warfare systems can have on Russian air defenses, they're working to, one, both mitigate that a bit with some of their own electronic warfare platforms to protect air defenses, but two, they see mostly as the United States and West having not advanced in this area of development, and why would we have fighting the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS, right? I mean, what would have been the impetus and motivation behind us investing in that? However, looking down the line, as always, they are training and exercising, as Roger said, under the assumption that we will wake up, which we in some respects have, and we will eventually deploy some capability in a limited sense, and they're already planning and training and exercising in a heavily EMS-contested environment because they assume that we're going to get this stuff down the line. Okay. All right. Thank you. That was helpful. Let's open it up to this illustrious audience. And I see we have a question here in the front. Uh, please, um, if everyone can, please identify themselves, um, say where they're from, and also be sure to ask a question. <laughs> Uh, Sidney Friedberg, breaking defense, and uh, half Latvian on my dad's side, so probably inherently biased. Uh, looking at you know the t the T and E of the the, co the EW companies and the brigades, the EW brigades in the, in the military districts, all these functions, and you know that you can't find something comparable on the U.S. side. Certainly, uh, as you said, there's you know a few staff officers here and there. There's not very much hardware, but to what degree are the things that we see as this huge EW force. This includes stuff that we don't call EW in the West, be it you know, SIGINT or Cyber or Signals. And to what extent is it you know, replicating what we have under other names? What extent is it really a asymmetric advantage, the capability that we have no equivalent to uh, over in the West? Okay. Right. Go ahead. I'll take the first part. Yeah. <coughs> I would emphasize the way in which they bundle up or mm -hmm. cluster capabilities. Uh, what I mean by that is that we can't just strip out the EW capability and look at it separately uh, uh, as removed from cyber, uh, SIGINT, air defense, etc. It appears that the extent to which they integrate is most evident in this asymmetric thinking. And I think we can prove the case because 
you remember uh, there were many times in which, <clears throat> because of a force build-up on the border with Ukraine, it led to fear, uh, speculation, that there could be a, a more conventional and larger scale ground attack carried out in Ukraine. And <clears throat> it always uh, slightly puzzled me because the Russians were going through a period of train and equip of the proxy forces, which they appear to have carried out fairly successfully in, in the given time. But what was puzzling for me wasn't so much the train and equip, but that whenever they were pushing uh, conventional forces across the border, which was usually to sort out something that had gone wrong, it was a question for me as to why are they using such small numbers? And I think when you look at the social media, uh, you can find almost uh, all of the, the known systems, uh, Russian EW systems, popping up somewhere in Donbass. Maybe not for terribly long, but they were certainly there and certainly experimenting. Mm -hmm. And in the, one of the slides from the report, I, I tried to show systems that were featuring there regularly. And I included TORN, which is a system that at this point hasn't been procured by the Russian military. So it's another example of the way that they were using this to experiment. But my point is, by bundling these capabilities together, they are discovering what they've known at a theoretical level for some time. And that is, you can really create a lot of mayhem and chaos amongst your enemy forces by deploying small numbers and using that, that deployment <coughs> if, if it's uh, properly tailored to the operational environment in such a way that they're minimizing the risks, they're minimizing the risks of too many Russian casualties, etc. So the part of the success, if we're objective, about Russia's uh, destabilization of southeastern Ukraine is that there is uh, an EMS narrative. And just by way of ending on this point, uh, many of the representatives working in the OSC SMM uh, said when they, they were able to, to conduct off-the-record interviews in this area, that they noticed at quite an early stage that if their cell phones were jammed, something kinetic was about to happen. And I mention this because it underscores one of Mike's points, is that they're using EW with other capabilities to enhance fire control. We're using it side by side with artillery. Yeah. yeah. Well, Anything to add? Yeah, I would simply add something. It's a sport, right? So meaning that all these, a lot of these capabilities are multifunctional. And when you look at someone, you ask yourself a question, is a Lear 3 drone electronic warfare system a jamming system? Yes, it is, it jams communications. Is it a PSYOP system because it sends SMS messages to everybody on the battlefield after jamming communications and tells them things? Yes, it's that too. It's an electronic warfare system, it's an information warfare system, it does both. And a lot of systems that have multifunctions where they're both youth, used in an ISR role to detect adversaries, find cooperative targets, and also to jam certain spectrums, right? And they can do a number of things. So they're both supportive, 
uh, in intelligence finding activity. They're also defensive. They have direct defeat functions. And they can do a lot of this as a combination. Right? So it's, some of them are more Swiss Army knife than others, obviously. But some of them are more specialized in particular things that they do. But in general, Russian approach is to integrate that. Well, the Russian approach is to think of it as that, whereas the American approach is to think of the different component parts as doing all the different componenty things they do. Now, um, I would argue there are probably advantages and disadvantages to looking at it both ways. Yeah, I, I would add that there's also, a, within, within the capability and how you use it, there's a principal different thinking on authorities that a company or battlefield battalion commander can have, right? on who gets to deploy certain psycho psychological operations, cyber, whatnot, in that environment. And so there's, there's already an implicit understanding that this will be pre-delegated for that tactical situation because the system's going to be doing it. Great. Okay, let's, uh, um, gentlemen here right there. Uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent consultant. Uh, since you uh, are, are very familiar with the, uh, the Russian military thinking, in these areas, I would pose the question of whether uh, they've really gone through a major transition uh, and they're thinking similar perhaps to us if we go to this concept of new type warfare, you know, that uh, General Gerasimov laid out and it's been developed. Essentially, uh, most of the examples that have come up so far have been uh, uh, electronic warfare or electronic countermeasures in a supportive role i.e. to block a plane, to do this, do that. But actually, it seems the current thinking, and also the U.S. with the multi-domain concept, is that you're going to treat the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum as a co-equal domain with, with your other domains of war fighting. So it's, it's the transition from thinking of it as some kind of support area to actually a co-equal domain. Uh, have you picked up on any of that? I think you've just offered a, a good summary of what we're discussing yeah. because it's not just that they've picked up on it, it's the fact that they're doing it. They've been discussing, uh, as we can easily recall, the advances in United States and Western militaries find their roots in Soviet military thinking, particularly I'm alluding to the revolutionary military affairs championed by Marshal Agarkov. Now, the problem for the Soviets is that they had some absolutely forward, brilliant thinkers at the, the high end of their armed forces. But unfortunately, the state collapsed. And for many years, they weren't spending money in this area. So the example I referred to earlier of this uh, anti-satellite system, why has it been at R&D stage since 2001? Well, the answer is that even uh, in the early 2000s, there wasn't very much money going in to procurement. And what Putin did, who I know he, he receives a great deal of criticism in this town, but he gave stability to the Russian armed forces. And he knew that there were many, many weaknesses and issues to overcome. But one of the things that he's done consistently in the last few years, even though uh, for a time he was prime minister, is to ensure that there's a constant flow of money into these projects. So I think that those types of uh, projects that were at R&D stage and being sat on, they've found that the money is now there 
to, to get these systems up and running. But to underscore your point, uh, I've encountered uh, over the past few years quite a bit of skepticism in Western circles about Russian C4ISR, network-centric. And it mainly comes down to thinking and culture. And the, the type of criticism is that Russians, if you excuse the, the sweeping statement, Russians aren't known for uh, quick thinking, problem solving, uh, showing initiative. Now, I can accept this argument up to a point, but there is a counter argument to it. Russians will never ever copy something that originates in the United States. What they do with these ideas is they take them and they Russify them. They have to find ways of this applying in their culture, in their military culture. And yes, there may be down at uh, the tactical level uh, some of those uh, thinking weaknesses like how, how they formulate the decision making, how they show initiative. But we find the initiative in the Russian system is up at a much higher level. Uh, like uh, the Russian generals that were rotating in and out of Donbass would have a similar level of initiative, in my view, to the Western counterparts. But they are finding ways of making C4ISR work for them. They know better than we do the limits and weaknesses of their system and their systems. And in, in my view, they certainly have reached a point, not an end point, but they've reached a stage where they do have credible C4ISR capability now, not next week or sometime in the future. And this is something that they will continue to work on, invest in, and refine. Okay. All right, let's uh, over here. Um, uh, Whitney McNamara from the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. There is a recent Wall Street Journal article um, saying how there were attacks on Russian bases in Syria by kind of homemade crude drones and that the article seemed to infer that Russia had the same problem the U.S. did, which is that we're able to use these small U.S.s to great effect, but we both struggle to defend against them. Um, because they do go under, they leave a very little and fair footprint that can be tracked. I wondered to what extent you agreed with that, that their ability to defend against these small uh, drones, and whether you think that will be, there'll be a shift um, in dealing with that or focusing on more strategic effects, which they've been doing so far. Hmm. Okay. I mean, you've been talking about this, Roger. Yeah, I, I think we're very differently placed against counter-drone tactics. I think Russians are very well placed because throughout their military, they have short-range and medium-range point defenses that their ground forces bring along. And there's absolutely nothing more effective against a drone than a 20-millimeter round at high rate, right? That's issue one, and Panzer One shows that. And we don't have that stuff, principally. If you look at what our Marines and ground forces deploy with in terms of shore ad, good luck. That's problem one. Number two, they also have a lot of electronic warfare systems, right? And they're working on systems that are more specific to counter drone technology, how you might deal not with drones like what, um, you know, Jabal Nusra launched on, but how you would deal with 
drone swarm technology and drone technology down the line that we're actually investing in higher end drones that we also have a number of projects in, in the works for right of how we're going to deal with A2AD. So they're aware of that and they're thinking about down the line how they're going to be countering those capabilities. But yeah, I think generally that this is probably a much bigger challenge today for United States and Western militaries than this for the Russian military just because their military is so air defense heavy to begin with. It's a hedgehog. Yeah. Do you agree, Roger? Yes, uh, it's very much Yozhik. Uh, uh, <coughs> there is a set of real capabilities there which they, they believe in, in lumping together and, and clustering. And they, they seem confident that at this stage they're able to deal with those potential drone attacks. But in terms of that type of reporting, I would offer a, a level of skepticism because towards the end of the, the work I did on this report, there were efforts made by some journalists to try to pin me down to make comments on some issues that were coming up, particularly uh, some efforts to, to jam uh, systems Cell, cell phones mainly on NATO military bases in Eastern Europe. And I mention this because my skepticism when I was being asked these questions, we don't know if these are EW systems or if it's just some, some hacker with access to the internet. Mm. And we have to distinguish between things different. And my skepticism ultimately there was rooted in the fact that many of these ground-based Russian systems, they'd have to move them pretty close. You know, what, what are they doing? Are they sneaking about Eastern Europe with this stuff in their, their baggage? You know, and if they get caught, you know, it's, it's a pretty uh, serious escalation if, if they were indeed doing this type of thing. So there's a lot of speculation, and those uh, reported uh, media narratives uh, can sometimes cloud the issue of the specifics of what those developments are and uh, the, the context of exactly what they're doing. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, to conclude that, uh, that we should be scaring our children with stories about the Russian Federation. Well, if I can, if I can jump in on this, I think, I think what's, there are a few... There are a few things uh, embedded in your question and in the reporting and in the responses that we've heard from Mike and Roger that it actually might, is, might be worth parsing a little bit. One is um, this question, what do you think the threat is and how prepared are you for the threat that's actually coming at you? So Russians and Americans historically like to think that if you're prepared for the big enemy, you're prepared for the small enemy. Time and again, it turns out that's not actually how this works, that the big enemy works differently from the small enemy. So if you are planning and preparing for autonomous systems that the United States might deploy or that Russia might deploy, and what you're facing instead is a lot of homemade stuff, um, some, some of it will work. It might be awfully expensive, right? You might be um, using a very and, and making vulnerable very expensive systems um, in order to take out very cheap systems that your adversary is doing is using, so I think that I think that's an aspect of it. Um, I think both Russia and the United States, insofar as they plan to continue to operate in conflict environments where they're facing insurgents, 
are going to find their bases under attack by things like this. The United States doesn't do that badly defending against it either. Right? The reason we heard about this attack on the Russians is because it made the news. But US bases get attacked like this all the time, and they respond all the time. Um, so I think kind of being, oh my god, the Russians have these incredible systems that sh can shoot at high rates and take out all the drones. In this case, they did. Um, on the other hand, the Russians faced what looked like a mortar attack just a few days before that that did some damage. And that wasn't even fancy drones. I think, I think the broader challenge is that if you've got a base, you're going to have adversaries that go after your base by all sorts of means. Some of those adversaries will have more technology. Some of them will have less. And you've got to be prepared for the whole spectrum. And nobody does a great job of that. So let's take um, this, sir. Bob Angevine, Institute for Defense Analyses. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kind of human capital challenges posed by EW for the Russian military um, and how they're manning their units. Because I know, at least uh, for the units that were deployed in or near the Donbas, they did a lot of kind of cherry picking of other units and, and took, you know, select small bits of units and moved them. Have they, did they do the same thing with their EW or are they having issues in terms of manning their EW units? Well, the, the EW component is obviously highly specialist. So <coughs> rightly, you're identifying the, the need uh, not just to cherry pick, but clearly they're not going to have conscripts anywhere near this. These are highly trained, professional uh, EW contractniki. Uh, I don't think, given the numbers that they can lay hands on, that they would particularly struggle to, to move uh, specialist forces with those systems. And I think if they're <coughs> attempting to train proxy forces with the systems, then you're, you're looking at, again, uh, specialist contractniki and probably taking uh, longer serving specialists from the DW brigades. Um, on an aside, uh, we refer to these terms, but we should be careful. Those brigades are probably quite small. Uh, I wouldn't say that there is the same size as a, as a combat brigade. Mm -hmm. But they'll be pulling specialists from there. They, they'll use uh, specialists in the same way that they'll construct the battalion tactical groups. You know, th th this is a kind of a buffet style that's consistent with how Russian commanders would approach uh, these operations. Uh, there's some evidence that they've struggled with uh, rotational aspects, but I haven't seen that they've been particularly concerned about the, the EW aspect. I think the most revealing feature uh, is the command and control struggle that they encounter when they, they mass forces close to the Ukraine border, which uh, seems that they've drawn uh, command and control lessons from that that are feeding into the, the current wider organizational changes and moving uh, infrastructure closer to Ukraine's border, which uh, seems to have absolutely nothing 
to do with the standoff with NATO, but more uh, a sign that there's a long-term Russian commitment not to back away from its strategic interests in Ukraine. The specialists then, I would say there would be no uh, insurmountable problem about moving comparatively small numbers of those guys in and out of Donbass uh, as is required. Oh, I'll add briefly. Um, I think a lot of that depends a bit on how you assess the size and growing share of contractors in the overall Russian military. So up until this past year, they've been doing quite well, and contractors are a very large part of the force now. However, they're highly unevenly distributed. That is, let's say, if maybe almost 90% of the Navy is contractor-based with almost nobody serving on ships and submarines from conscripts. That's not the same case on the ground forces. However, looking at the numbers in my sort of general mental picture, there is somewhere in Russian ground forces where they are eating a small shortage of manning. I'm highly skeptical that it's in the electronic warfare companies and brigades. Right? I'm quite confident, given the large number of contractors currently serving in the military, that they have enough. The issue that they have is you have wild, some wild swings in availability of contractors because as people will sign, you had a whole wave of contractors who signed service agreements that then expired up this past year in 2017, and you can have uneven force mannings over three to five year timelines, where it'll be good, but there might be a particular year where you have a large number of contracts expiring or re-ups that don't go through, and then you might have some shortfalls. And sort of a broad way to tackle it. And just to clarify, when we say contractor here, we don't mean private military companies. Yeah. We mean professional soldiers who have signed a contract to serve as opposed to conscripts. Right, right for those who ask. Because private military companies are another thing that they haven't been talking about, but could be. For another time. For another time. <laughs> All right. Uh, more uh, questions? Yes, there's a microphone coming to you. Harry Lesser, I'm a retired Army Intelligence Colonel from Cold War days. Are the two questions, are the Russians using the Soviet terminology for radio electronic combat, reconnaissance fire complexes and reconnaissance strike complexes, or have they invented new terminology? And second of all, do they consider directed energy, in particular lasers, a part of electronic warfare? The reason I ask that is that in the spring of 87, I was the S2 of the 11th ACR in Fulda and was responsible for our border surveillance operations. One of our Apaches was flying the border in the Ton Pocket area and a Russian hind popped up, had a unique paint uh, pattern, uh, followed the, our Apache for a while, then lased it with a green laser, uh, then it flew back across the, or it wasn't across the border, but it flew back into uh, Czechoslovakia at the time. Uh, we never saw it again. Uh, the pilots, our pilots did have laser burns on their eyes. Uh, but it, again, it was the only time that in my two years in Germany we ever saw that particular helicopter along the border or a laser attack along the border. Thanks. Okay. Got, got answers to that? There's a movie in that story already. <laughs> Can I just clarify, are you referring to passive tracking or something different? No, it was uh, it means directed energy. Actually, I thought it was a laser attack. Yeah. Okay, the, well, the simple answer is they don't discuss this in the military literature. <laughs> it's, it's one of the gaps. Uh, 
doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And the reason I refer to the, the passive side is because there is some reference in the, the literature, particularly that uh, in Syria they've been using passive tracking to build up a database of coalition aircraft. So on the laser side, we would need to see more in the way of, of a discussion that they're understandably reluctant to engage in. But it, it could also be an aspect of this uh, buzzing that they are intermittently carrying out, that there's, there's something else going on uh, other than th these uh, fantasy stories about switching off agents. Yeah, can I add to that? Um, on terminology, I'd say that a lot of it does carry over from Soviet time. Some of it's new, like maybe now instead of a recon strike complex, it's now contours, and we're talking about loops of how these systems interact in the decision making. But there's there is a lot of carryover um, with some changes. On directed energy weapons, as Roger said, they would be fools to be discussing uh, where they are necessarily in the open and what some of their capabilities are. Particularly, we can only feature and guess at what wartime reserve modes are in some systems for one, and two, what some of the capabilities have down the pike. The only things they're much more public about is talking about defense systems for aircraft and helicopters, where they do feature both electronic warfare type jamming pods like BTFs, but also talking about future developments of how they're gonna try to get into the laser point defense game. And if you know that there's a conversation on that, there's undoubtedly also a conversation somewhere in directed energy for various types soft kill and even perhaps um, uh, Permanently damaging things like satellites. So I don't. I personally don't know where that's at. There's. I agree with Roger. There's not a lot in the literature. What we can say is, Russia inherited a lot of very interesting programs in the 1980s from the Soviet Union. Most of the technologies I see fielded today are all were all on design books 1985 to 89 with high confidence. And if the Soviet Union had not collapsed, we would probably seen them at the end of the 90s, early 2000s. But when funding resumed. We now seeing them slowly either come to fruition or get deployed, distributed across the force. I highly suspect that there were all sorts of fascinating directed energy weapon programs that Soviet Union had on the books in the late 80s. I have no idea which, if any of them, ever made it into further funding phase under the modernization program. Great. Other questions? You can have a, a second. Got to write the article. Yes. Uh, Sydney Friedberg again, uh, still half Latvian. Uh, the uh, you know sort of the bottom line question that is the elephant in the room, or perhaps the big bear in the room. Uh, you know, given all these EW capabilities, if God forbid something happened, you know, be in the Baltics or wherever, uh, what happens to all of our lovely NATO electronic systems? Do the Russians flip a bunch of switches? at every level from motor rifle division, brigade to, uh, to military district and all our screens go dark? Or you know, do we actually, you know, without the, you know, being the Donald Cook scenario, uh, do we actually, you know, are we able to endure uh, whatever they're able to put out and continue to function? Obviously the final answer isn't noble, but what are the, what's the range of probabilities? Okay. Can they take it all out? Are, are, are we, are we going to be defeated by the brilliant integrated Russian electronic warfare machine? They won't take it all out, but what they will do is they'll build the EW component into their response, and their response will be about uh, making any NATO operation 
in the Baltic or elsewhere on NATO's eastern flank, as difficult, uh, as costly, as complex as possible. They will use this to muddy the waters. They will use this capability to play into the asymmetric advantages that they know that they have. And in a worst case scenario, we lose. And the reason we lose is because by the time our follow-on forces are arriving, there's no show in town. And this essentially is the big fear within the alliance. By the time you put something credible there, the Russians have brought you down to a question of, so what is it? Do you want to go to war with a nuclear power? Or do you want to talk about some kind of Minsk-like deal? But that's not about electronic warfare. That's a different strategic question. Yeah, I'm saying that they would use the EW capability to play into the set of strengths that they know they already have on Russia's periphery that they will use this to complicate any NATO operation. And they will always introduce this element of reminding the alliance that on Russia's periphery, Russia has escalation dominance. And that, that isn't going to be uh, an easy set of complexities for the alliance to deal with or, or to unbundle. Mike? But that's a worst-case scenario. Well, the worst-case scenario is always you lose. But yeah. and I, I, I wouldn't like to, to say that that is absolutely the, the end game. Um, I mean, I think my answer to you, Sydney, would be is I think that what happens is some of our systems don't work as well as we thought they would, and some of Russia's systems don't work as they thought they would. And what happens is you have your typical World War I scenario where people invest in a whole bunch of technologies, right? and operational planning and having never fought that kind of war with those systems before against each other they get to the battlefield and they find out very quickly that they didn't bring enough ammunition it actually doesn't work out the way they thought it would and you know the the plan survives maybe one day of contact and things get very complicated and messy those people who invested in more resilient systems will do better than those who didn't naturally those who put money towards that problem set um, so i expect it will have some effect it's very difficult to tell how it shake out but I would in no way say uh, stuff is like magic, it's so brilliantly effective, and I always encourage people, please do not take the wrong lessons away from the conflict in Ukraine. We are not Ukraine, all right? And so, even Ukraine hasn't been that easy to defeat. Primarily, This is not what causes Ukrainian military defeats. Yeah, absolutely not. And I also frankly don't believe some of the stories that come out of Ukraine because the physics of them are a little bit fantastical to, to you new know. It's new physical principles. Yeah, I'm <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. There would really have to be some new physical principles for it to achieve some of those effects. Um, the other thing I would tell you, Sydney, is I would not focus so much on will they make our screens go black. That is, that is part of the problem. The problem is there's all sorts of things they can do to us. Can they see what's on our screens? Oh, can they see us as we approach? That's a whole separate issue because Russian military can destroy a lot of things if it can see them on approach. It's very hard for them to see anything. There's always been the problem Soviet Union had too. These are much bigger problems than the question is, how does it change the probability kill on this missile before we fire two and now we have to fire three? That's my personal sentiment on it. Okay. Uh, in the back, um, in, the red, in the red. 
Hi, uh, so my name is Amanda Crow from the Association of Old Crows. Um, did you hear me? Old Crows. Yeah, Association of Old Crows. Yes. <laughs> I'm um, sure they're right. Uh, yeah, so um, what, it, with all these reports, and, and we know that the West is lagging behind on EW capabilities, and I'm not trying to inflate the Russian threat or anything like that, what is it going to actually take for the West to, to wake up and sort of, uh, you know, come up in these capabilities? Is it going to take a scenario where uh, NATO is engaged and we see our systems fail or don't work as well? What is it going to take? Answer. $713 billion. <laughs> There's no other way. We have to have it. Right, but is, but is there any way to convince the West that that money is worth spending as well? Well, I think, I, well I think the first question you want to ask is, is that money worth spending? Is, being, you know, is, is the solution um, a, a perfectly symmetrical one? Okay, first let me give you a DC Pound answer. More is more. Activity is achievement. But here's Nas's answer. Um, look, is it worth spending money on improving resilience and looking at systems and also looking at how you're going to fight in EMS contested environment? Yeah, absolutely, definitely is. Otherwise, I mean, it's, it's true you're, we're lagging behind. Yeah, I, I hate making these generalistic comparisons, right? Because the, we have different capabilities for different mission sets. Our way of fighting is a bit different. So it's always a little bit eh, very fuzzy to say, you know, they are 10 and we are 7. But that being said, um, I do think it's worth putting money towards this. I'm not sure it's worth putting money towards all the things that are asked for in a $713 billion budget, obviously. Uh, my personal view is that solutions should be as cheap as they can be, as distributed to the force they can be. And I hope that we do not go down a traditional approach of let's buy really high-end boutique capabilities that very few allies and people will be able to afford. And it'll cost billions of dollars. It'll be really, really good uh, money well spent. And uh, certainly not against Russia. Right? Because you know there's capability, but then there's the capacity side. And Russians are definitely investing probably much more in the capacity side. Ultimately, how many of these, not necessarily so high-tech electronic warfare they can, uh, um, they're going to have, and how many they can spread across uh, the ground forces. Right? And in, the answer is already that they're going to have quite a few. They may not be very expensive, but there will be a lot of them. Roger, do you have anything to throw in on that? Uh, the solution <coughs> appears more to, to lie in the area of training. Uh, this was a controversy that came up when uh, discussing the report in Estonia, uh, particularly uh, the events in Tartu, later event in Tallinn. The one particular controversy was in the, the conclusion or recommendations. I made reference to the potential helpful role that could be played by Israel, and what I had meant by this wasn't uh, technology transfer, but in the area of training. Mm -hmm. And it kind of highlighted a sensitivity in that part of the world, because one of the Baltic states is particularly unforgiving about Israeli defense sales to Russia, particularly uh, UAVs. But it doesn't stop the, the other Baltic states uh, from dealing, even in this area, uh, you know, buying into Israeli systems or having Israeli upgrades. So from my perspective, the, the biggest gap isn't so much technology, it's, it's training and how EW is thought about, how it's exploited. And that's the area where it seems that the Russians are making most progress. 
is the extent to which they're populating their land army, their land forces, with the systems and with these specialists to engage in this kind of combat. And no, we cannot tell in advance because we, we've got nothing to make a scientific comparison with. We, we cannot see what the outcomes would be of this type of clash between uh, high technology adversaries. Mike, you want to jump in? Yeah, I just want to make a minor point. Um, Roger, I, th I think very valuable comment on training. I think one of the challenges that we have is uh, really understanding how to reduce the extent to which we're cooperative in this environment. And that's a challenge that all militaries face just as much as Russian ones, which is, it's very hard for us not to, and their military not to telegraph everything we're doing, when we're doing, how we're doing, and this part Russians figured out because, frankly, the, you know, the covert war in Ukraine has to be one of the least secret activities because almost everything their military does, all their soldiers take Facebook photos, where they are, what piece of hardware they're supplying. It's very hard for a single tank to go from Russia to Ukraine without five guys taking a photo with it somewhere, right? Like, is the reality, the nature of the conflict, uh, and it shows you that um, training could do a lot I'm not sure, given the size of the organizations, the institutions involved, to what extent we can, to what extent, uh, we can fix it and, and change the culture on that. But that is a problem that technology for sure will not solve. No amount of technology will change certain aspects of military culture and also how generations use technology. Okay. All right. Uh, in the back. Hi, uh, John O'Connell, uh, Army National Guard Strategic Plans. So uh, recently served uh, on the NATO's eastern flank. So the third bullet on the screen there, which reads in the, their current form, NATO's plans to defend its eastern flank are inadequate as they do not take into account for the full spectrum of Russian's EW capabilities is particularly of concern to me. Uh, now, keeping everything unclassified, of course, is that statement an assessment of a specific NATO plan or is that more of uh, a broader statement based on uh, NATO's operations and activities that are releasable to the public? I can try to give you uh, a, a Russian perspective on that uh, as best as I possibly can. They notice how long it takes you to construct the scenario planning and they are aware of the difficulties because we're all democracies and we function on the basis of consensus, they are aware of differences and sensitivities in making adjustments to NATO scenarios. This is one of the reasons that, uh, as I alluded to earlier, the general staff probably doesn't take a NATO exercise as seriously as the political rhetoric would have us believe. Uh, here. Uh, I have in mind the, the tendency that, you know, if there's some small NATO activity, it, it gets blown up in the, the Russian media. And there are certain colorful Russian politicians that will make uh, exaggerated claims about NATO exercises. So I, I'm trying to give you, from a Russian military perspective, how they perceive our scenario planning issues. And they can quite quickly adjust their own because it's one state. You know, they, they don't have too much uh, problems or negotiating issues to do it. And we, we know that they did so 
bilaterally with Minsk over Zapad 2017. It's less clear whose knees became more wobbly, but in some reporting, the suggestion is that the Belarusians were concerned that in some of the uh, activities that would be derived from the Zapad scenarios and the vignettes is that the activity would be too close to NATO's borders. And it seems that there was a, a corrective uh, process involved. So in other words, it didn't take Moscow and Minsk very long to uh, make adjustments based on, on whatever was coming out of NATO and, and some Western circles. But I think the main advantage that I'm alluding to, and I want to underscore yet again, is the, the extent to which this is an integrated capability, and they're rehearsing it, they're simulating it, they're training, and they're pushing into it because uh, as we, those of us who study these things deeply are aware, there's this great tradition of Russians learn by doing. It's not just all theory. So they're pulling in lessons that they're drawing from Donbass uh, and also lessons from the conflict in Syria. All right, do you have anything to add to that? No, no? I will not okay. speak to Raj's PowerPoint. Okay, um, so we are out of time, um, but uh, thanks everyone for taking part. And please join me in thanking Roger and Mike for uh, leading a really, really interesting session. Thanks everyone.